The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program and thanks for joining me. Today I'll be speaking with Peter Dassler, the CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CBVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVB. Canalaska is a new sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report, engaged in the business of exploring for uranium and diamonds in the Athabasca region of Canada. Canalaska has partnerships with Cameco, one of the world's largest uranium producers, and the Beers the world's largest diamond producer. You'll also hear from Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com. Brent is an analyst and geologist and we'll hear his thoughts on gold. I'll speak with Mike Rapsch of Silvercrest Metals trading as SIL on the TSX Venture Exchange and CVCMF in the U.S. Silvercrest has the Las Chispas project in Sonora State, Mexico with Bonanza grades of silver reported there. Yanis Sitos of Gold Source Mines, GSX on the venture, and GXSFF in the U.S. updates us on production at the Eagle Rock Mine in Guyana. And Bob Lang interviews Chris Bunka of Luxaria Bioscience, trading as LXRP. Luxaria Bioscience is a revenue-generating food sciences company focused on the delivery of hemp oil compounds through gourmet foods based on proprietary technologies. Let's begin the program. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a recent conversation at the New Orleans Investment Conference with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own, holding one of the largest land positions in the region, comprising of up to 1,800 square miles. Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer, Cameco. Additionally, the company has staked approximately 75 diamond targets in the Athabasca, bringing in De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer, as a partner. Peter, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Alice. I've had a good couple of days here with shareholders that we met last year. There's been a lot of comments about how our stocks moved over the past 12 months and uh, being able to good to uh, in- fill them in on what's been going on. I'm sure our audience would like to know the reason for that. Additionally, why should we as 
serious potential investors consider Ken Alaska right now? Well, we've got a lot on the go. We've got De Beers working on uh, some Kimberlite targets. We've got Cameco, the world's richest uranium miner, working on one of our projects. And we've got two other juniors active on our diamond and one other active on our uranium property. So, you know, well, that means five properties and one more. I've Denison drilled a hole on one of our properties earlier this year, hit some uranium, and we fully expected them to drill in the winter t- in the summertime. Too much water, so I do expect something to happen here with them in the winter. So, series of projects on the go. $39 million worth of deals uh, signed this year. Those deals commit to other companies to work on our properties, therefore saving our shareholders any dilution against those projects. We think discoveries are possible on a number of targets that we've got already, and there will be further targets that will be developed out of that. Now, you just mentioned two of the biggest names in mining, and one of them is Cameco. Another one in a different business, of course, is De Beers. Now, let's take a look at uranium first. Of course, there's a, a public downside to that. We need to put aside the misconception that a uranium is not our friend, and I'd like to do that today. Why is uranium our friend, and why is it a potential good investment? for now and in the future? Well, since 2004, I've been pointing out the beneficial effects of having nuclear power plants operating rather than coal-fired power plants operating. Probably the best way to give you that example is I I love Tesla. I love Tesla electric cars. They've done a marvelous thing, but they're run by 65% coal in North America. And so you've got to look where the energy is coming from. You take a 300-horsepower car and plug it into a 10 or 20-horsepower house. Where is that electricity coming from? In Canada, 16% of it comes from nuclear power in the the U.S. about the same amount. Similarly, around the world, in Ontario, it's 45%, and in France, it's 90% of their power comes from nuclear. And we're now seeing China say, we can't afford this pollution. It's too hard on the population. It's too hard to live in these cities, and they're building a vast fleet of nuclear reactors to, to generate cheap power. And that's also happening here in the U.S., not to that degree, but we're starting to come on board. Well, there are five nuclear power plants uh, under construction here in the U.S. right now. Many people don't know that. There are another 36 under permitting. On October 19th, the first nuclear power plant at Watts Bar in Tennessee got turned on. Uh, It was under construction 20 years ago. They just finished construction uh, this month and it was turned on. So there's a first power plant. But down in Georgia, we've got two more power plants being built. 3,000 people working on those to build them. A lot of jobs, jobs, jobs. And then, of course, you're going to have cheap electricity. You're not going to have to pay the premium for solar or wind power. These plants are operating at a very cheap rate for a long period of time, 50, 60 years. Now, you mentioned the Athabasca Basin, which is at the north end of Saskatchewan for our American audience. It is in Canada, not in the U.S. And what I know that to be, as far as the grades of uranium are, they're better than anywhere else in the world. They're incredible. And the cost of pulling that out of the ground and the political risk is much, much less than it is anywhere else in the world. Well, different parts of the world have special events. You know, if you go to Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, you're going to see vast amounts of oil and that's been tapped over the last 60, 70, 80 years. But if you look around the world, you find uranium everywhere, but there's only one place where they find these extremely high-grade uranium deposits, and that's in the Athabasca Basin, which is sort of in the northern part of Saskatchewan in Canada, right in the middle, central in Canada. It's a very good jurisdiction, it's a very stable jurisdiction, and so it has two advantages. One, the grades are extremely high and high grades you can make lots of money out of, and so the companies do very well there. But the second thing is very strategic because you know you're going to be able to produce from those areas for the life of the nuclear power plants that uranium will supply. You're not stuck in a third world jurisdiction where you don't know who's going to be controlling it next. 
You mentioned China. Now, is that a potential market for offtake? China is building more nuclear reactors right now. The ground's broken or they're totally planned. More nuclear reactors than the U.S. has got already. There's 141 reactors operating in the U.S., and China's building over 200 right now. But to meet their clean air commitments, they probably have to triple that amount of reactors, seven, eight, nine hundred reactors. They're being built. They're cookie-cutter. They're All they are are concrete and steel infrastructure for the most part of it. They have a workforce that can do that. They've learned how to do it. And we're publishing basically monthly now a new reactor being started up somewhere around the world. Most of them are in China. What would you say to those individuals that maybe have a sour taste in their mouth from the last run with uranium, let's say, several years ago that ended abruptly with the incident at Fukushima? How is the world different now? The world's realized that we've got more and more pollution. We've got to have clean sources of power. Any of those in business will realize that if you have cheap power, you have manufacturing and you have jobs and you have a stable workforce and a good standard of living. As soon as you have to start paying triple the amount of the cost of someone in some other country for your power, you're going to find that your standard of living drops. China has recognized that. They're going to have a cheap power for the next 60 to 100 years from these existing reactors. And if we don't catch up with that, we're going to be burning coal or we're going to have very expensive sources of energy for the next while. And you won't be able to drive those Teslas and plug them in because they'll cost too much to run. I'm going to put on my diamond hat for a second now. Uh, you happened to find diamonds when you weren't looking for it in the Athabasca. Let's discuss how that happened. I know the story, but let's have you tell it to our audience. We bought De Beers in the early part of this year on a project that we thought looked like a diamond project. They thought it looked like a diamond project. And so they bought in an airplane that flew it up from New Zealand, put six pilots up there and flew a very intensive airborne survey and came up and told us we had over 300 targets that looked like kimberlite. And it wasn't sort of out of the blue about 2006 we'd seen something that looked like a kimberlite up on that area but it was in 2012 just after Fukushima that our team was still working uh, looking at all the surveys that came in and they recognized that one particular government survey which had just been done showed a large number of small blips on the landscape that could be kimberlite and the reason why is that these were magnetic anomalies that were about half a mile in diameter something we would not expect in an area where you have white sandstone generally no magnetic minerals anywhere around them. So we had magnetic anomalies, half a mile in diameter. We had 88 different zones we were looking at, and now we've got the detail on them giving us 300 targets in those areas. This is something quite different but what you would expect in a new diamond field. Now, like uranium, I'll make this comparison. There's not enough diamonds in the world that are in production right now, more or less, to cover the demand. And this is why De Beers is very, very interested in the property that you have. And as I understand it, they're paying for it. Uh, yes, they've entered into a $20 million deal to explore this piece of ground. We optioned uh, about 20% of our land position to be as They are charging forward to that exploration. We've seen a lot of other companies join the area now, and, and I think this claim staked for well over 100 miles in each direction. We have got the eyes and the potato, if you like. We've got the targets that were the most significant ones there. It's not our core business, but we realize that they could be very valuable. Now, Chemico is one of the largest, if not the largest, uranium company in the world. They're a major company. Why specifically did they decide to partner up with Ken Alaska? Cameco is a very strategic Canadian company. They're probably not supplying the most uranium in the world, but they supply uranium from the highest grade uranium.
uranium mines. One of their mines, MacArthur River, does about 15% of the world's uranium every day, only mining 192 tons of rock. That's quite staggering. They report that that mine is 100 times richer than any other uranium mine in the world and is well recognized that way. They've just born on stream another uranium mine, Cigar Lake, which I think is doing between 10 and 12% of the world supply every day. Not a very large workforce, but these very high-grade rich deposits. Now, we figured that back in 2004, we could also find a deposit in that same area by using new technology. And we flew the first deep-penetrating airborne surveys in that area, a bit like running a metal detector across the beach, except this is a very big airplane with a lot of power in it. And we were suddenly able to see over half a mile down into the ground. Those targets that we got from that airborne survey are the ones that we started drilling about two months later and very quickly after that we had Mitsubishi Corporation funding us because we had hit some uranium. We were able to show that these two large deposits that are being run by uh, Cameco are probably not the only two in that area and then recently this year Cameco has moved across the border from their property where they made a discovery onto our property under a deal where they're spending $12.5 million to test one of our zones. Tell us about the management team. Well I've got a bunch of very good geologists and geophysicists working with me. Jules LaJoy is a senior geophysicist that's worked for Tech Corporation for 25 years, world-renowned in geophysics, EM systems specifically. Dr. Carl Schiemann is my VP of Exploration. We've worked together for 12 years now. Carl used to work for the French mining company Arriva. He drilled the very first hole into the very first of these very high-grade uranium deposits in the Athabasca and ran operations there for 10 years for them. I've got a very good board. John Luke is a chair of our audit committee and an auditor. We've got Ambassador Thomas Graham, who's the chairman of the board. Ambassador Graham dealt with five U.S. presidents and negotiated the strategic arms deals with the Russians. And then we've got Kathleen Kennedy Townsend come to us, gives us a lot of legal support, very good background in finance, and very well connected politically. And we're rounded out with former chief of the Fond du Lac First Nation, Victor Fern. Victor's been able to help us tremendously in understanding how to work in the North and giving us uh, guidance as we go forward. Let's talk about the share structure. 27 million shares. 27 million shares, that's it. 30 million shares fully diluted. When the Fukushima event happened, we were trading at $1.65. Our share price diluted down to uh, the pennies range because of lack of interest in uranium. We couldn't do much about it at that time, but we did issue only 1.7 million shares in that intervening five-year period. And that was to develop a project that went on to another uh, joint venture partner that's uh, committing now to put $11.5 million into it. So there was a very strategic deal there. So 1.7 million shares issued under $1.65, an average shareholder price over the last 26 years of just over $3. We did have a main board listing on the Toronto Exchange, and uh, we just got that about eight weeks before, uh, and financed about eight weeks before uh, Fukushima. So it was a little bit disheartening back in 2011. We got where we wanted to be to go find and develop a uranium deposit, and the rug got pulled out from under us. So we just sat back, and now it's our turn to shine. You have about 18 projects, is that correct? We have uh, 18 uranium projects and a myriad of diamond projects, I would say. So really, we can't talk about mine life because we just don't know what that is. No, we're an exploration company. Uh, you know, it takes some time to develop a mine after you find it, but most people invest in exploration companies because at a discovery, there's usually a very, very significant capital gain available to the shareholders of the company. Now, that will dwindle over time as you spend money to develop a mine, and then finally when the mine's in production, you'll have a reasonable return. But a lot of people that we deal with like to put 5% of their portfolio into something that's a little bit higher 
higher risk but definitely much much higher reward and so we've tried to cut that risk down by getting other people to fund uh, our exploration projects these are such a, a valuable resource the uranium mines in the Athabasca any diamond mine is a very valuable resource and with a 13 million dollar company you know a company only worth 30 million dollars drilling into uh, something that's potentially several billion dollars in value will give a very good return to our shareholders. Peter it's great to visit with you here at the New Orleans Investment Conference thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you Alice I do appreciate getting the chance to chat with you and and, I certainly want to tell you more about what happens over the next couple of months here so I look forward to talking to your listeners later on. I've been speaking with Peter Dazzler President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium trading in the U.S. as CVVUM and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CVV at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Look for Canalaska's logo on our homepage and click through to their website. And listen to the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a discussion with Brent Cook an independent exploration analyst and geologist with 30 years of experience in both property economics and geology evaluations. He's a newsletter writer and the editor of WellRespectedExplorationInsights.com. I recently caught up with Brent at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Brent, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Always glad to see you wherever we're at. A lot has happened in the last year. There was a lot of excitement about a year ago related to whether or not silver or gold was going to take off. It has done so relatively speaking. There's been some lateral moves and where we're sitting now at the end of October, beginning of November 2016, there's been some money raised for some near producers and producing companies. How's it being deployed? Let's talk about that. Part of my talk today is on that subject and I think what's happened is we've seen about 4.4 billion raised at financings of greater than 10 million, but 83% of that has gone to the top mining companies, royalty companies, and that. And most of that is actually going into either paying back debt, working capital, or new acquisitions. I look at exploration on their exploration side. There's very little money being raised for exploration. If you look at financings of under $10 million, there's been about 657 individual financings. And you'd assume this is for exploration, but if you look at the average raise has been about a million, and the median is about half a million. So most of this money being raised in these small financings is just to keep the company alive. Not much of it's going into exploration. When do you think that's going to turn around so it's still not a great place for exploration companies at this point then? I don't see why or if it's going to turn around for any time soon, which to me is a very positive. Discoveries are way down. I mean, we're producing 90 million ounces a year from mines. We're discovering last year, we discovered 40 million ounces. So that deficit, that 50 million ounce deficit is not being made up. So the very few companies that are out there exploring and making legitimate discoveries are going to become increasingly valuable. And in my view, that's the place to be. And it bodes really well for the future for those select few companies. Well, this is very interesting news to frame it that way. Essentially, that means that gold in general is very, very undervalued. And that's not just a supposition. That's probably close to being a fact. On a production basis, yes. I mean, all the gold that's ever been produced almost is out there somewhere and potentially available. You know, there's no shortage of physical gold. But for the mining companies, there's a severe shortage of new gold to produce, and that's the shortage that I'm interested in. Where do you see progress in that area? It's going to be slow. I mean, there are very few companies out there making discoveries. It's hard to make a discovery. It's gotten harder over the past 20 years for 
a variety of reasons that I actually I go into. We've got a report we've re- released on Exploration Insights that anyone can get if they just send us an email on fatal flaws. But basically, it's become a lot harder to find new deposits because we're looking deeper, we're looking blind, the metallurgy gets more difficult, the politics, the social situation, and the environmental hurdles are all higher as well. So it's, it's getting harder to find these deposits at the time when we need them the most. So is there any money available through the majors and the uh, medium-sized companies to hit on some of these juniors to give up some of their properties, or the properties are just not there? There's some money, but not a lot. What's happened over the past five years as the gold price declined is the major mining companies, they cut their exploration budgets down to almost nothing. They cut their development as much as they could. They cut their sustaining capital as much as they could to stay profitable. And now they're faced with basically no exploration budgets or nothing new in the pipeline. So again, they are going to have to start looking at these junior companies, and that's where to watch uh, what they're doing. It would seem to me that given what we just heard from you that any number of economic factors and we can speculate probably for another hour at some point could drive potentially another parabolic rise like the kind we saw back in 2011 i think so i think you know we're going to see pretty flat metal prices through the end of this year until the fed raises rates i suspect they will do that but thereafter none of the problems that we're facing now that everybody's talking about in terms of debt and global economics and political situations, none of that's changing. And I think that's going to come back into the forefront next year. So I think right now, up until the end of the year, is the time to be acquiring these exploration companies that are actually onto something that could be economic. What's your view on PGMs, copper, uh, industrial uses for silver? Do you see that going way up next year, 2017, 2018? Those are bets on the global economy getting better. I don't see that happening in any large degree. I think copper is range-bound. PGMs are probably range-bound. Silver, it moves with gold uh, in that respect. But for me, probably 80, 75% of my investment is in gold. I like gold. I like everything about it, including the geology. So you've had a good year this last year, I'm going to guess. We've had a great year. In fact, I brought on a, a new analyst, Joe Mazumdar, in November when we started really getting invested in this sector. And Joe's been fantastic. He compliments what I do. And in and to be honest, he's smarter than me in a lot of respects, so uh, our newsletter has gotten a lot better. Fantastic. Are there any parts of the world right now that look compelling to you compared to what we, we spoke about a few years ago? I just came out of Scandinavia. I think Sweden, Norway, Finland are great places to be looking. They've been underexplored for a long time. West Africa still holds potential. Argentina looks good. A lot of the same places, parts of Canada. You mentioned Scandinavia and Canada, where infrastructure issues uh, are non-existent. They're fantastic there, as a matter of fact. Why is West Africa still attractive? It hasn't been explored to the detail extent that West Australia has been, and the geology is very similar. So there are a lot of projects out there that haven't seen drilling, haven't been drilled. You've just got surface geochemical anomalies, artisanal workings laying out there that companies are picking up and starting to figure out. So there's still potential there. Brent Cook, ExplorationInsights.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thanks. I've been speaking with Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Listen to the segment again on our website, EllisMartinReport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies.
Join me now for a conversation with Giannis Sittos, president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company producing gold in mining-friendly English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean and South America. Giannis, welcome back to the program. Thank you for the invitation, Alice. Thanks a lot. For listeners new to your company, please give us an overview of Gold Source Mines. Gold Source Mines, Inc. is a Canadian resources uh, junior company listed under the symbol GXS in Canada and GXSFF in the United States. We have moved to our main assets are in Guyana, especially the Eagle Mountain Gold Mine. Call it mine because, as you know, in 2016, we concluded the construction in January. On budget and on time, we initiated about six months of commissioning period, which we concluded in mid-summer, as we announced, and now effectively we are in, uh, I would say, third month of operation. You just released news about your production results for Q3 of 2016. Let's talk about that. I would like to remind your listeners, and especially for people who for first time hear the Gold Source Mine story, that this is a mine in development that goes in progress for the next three years. What we are pioneering and we are very proud of is uh, our engineering team, a specialist of uh, starting up production with a very low capital upfront, and then over a period of three to four years, built up the mine through a set of expansions. So more capital, in other words, is coming over the next three years to significantly increase the amount of throughput of, in other words, the amount of tonnes that we will be processing, and therefore the amount of that will be produced. But in this way, you de-risk the project as you go. It's different than just outlaying $150 million up front and starting a medium-sized mine in gold business where lots of things sometimes can go wrong from metallurgy to you know other kind of issues as you go and already you have laid down your investment. In our case, we are taking a prudent approach uh, from a point of view that we outlay smaller amounts of capital and we'll build it up uh, then with time. This way, we control much better our risks. Now, coming back to what I said before, the plan on when I said commissioning and production in uh, June, July, it was to produce 1,000 tons per day on one shift in terms of throughput and expectation to produce about 1,500 to 2,000 ounces per 16 because it's a short year. Then next year, obviously, go with uh, bigger expansions in terms of introducing a night shift that we are facing in, as we said today on our news release, in this quarter, in the Q4 of this year, 2016, and then deliver it as a full night shift by the conclusion of the first quarter of 2017. Subsequently to that, we want to introduce a lead reactor and then build the copycat plan to double the amount of capacity, effectively targeting by 2018 about 4,000 tons a day and about 30 to 35,000 ounces per annum, and that's the capacity. So we are in the first baby steps, I would say. We haven't broken even yet. We are planning to break even hopefully before the end of this year, so in just a couple of months. And coming back to the news of today, yes, we indeed produced about 175 ounces in this last quarter, but I would like to say that was attributable mainly to September because in August we had one month down by introducing a truck from coming from Canada and also making some improvements on our processing plant. You expect to be able to break even by the end of the year and by sometime in 2018, which is over a year away, you expect to generate between 7 to $10 million of gross revenue per year. That's fairly substantial. 
You're certainly thrifty and not wasting any funds, continuously developing the mine. This makes you unique among many of the small miners in the space, doesn't it? We are not unique. I'm pretty sure there are more people like us out there, and we know that some people are following us and try to apply similar approach to other projects. Where we believe we are really good is in controlling our operating costs. So one thing is to produce gold. The other thing is obviously how much profit margin you are making on every gold ounce you produce. Obviously, as I said before, we don't break even yet because we don't have the amount of ounces, but we have managed to keep our operating costs very low as a totality in terms of Guyana cost and obviously Canada. Now, out of independent engineering reports that were done on Eagle Mountain, over the mine life of the soft rock saprolite project, which is about eight years, the operating cost will be about $500 or $490 to be more accurate, US dollars per ounce as cash cost in Guyana and about $630 per ounce when I include Canadian overheads, sustaining capital and GNA in, in everywhere, everything in Guyana. So, this kind of cost leave a significant profit margin over even the current gold prices, albeit that people think this uh, gold market is pretty bullish at the moment, and I do believe. The only parameter I don't control, I always say I control my operating costs and uh, the cost of our team in Guyana and in Canada, and therefore that's our target, to deliver ultimately the mine, even at the bigger scale, but producing gold under $650 per ounce. You mentioned a mine life of eight years or so. What are you doing to step out or expand the resource over time? We've got about 5,000 hectares of land uh, that is all perspective. The mining activities at the moment take space around 250 hectares. So we've got quite a significant amount of land to explore as we go. And I would like to remind everybody that Eagle Mountain itself uh, is about 1 million ounces as compliant resource at about 1.45 grams per ton at 0.5 grams cut off. The deposit is open in three lateral directions and in depth. So I would like to say in 2013, when we stopped drilling, it was not a case of running out of oil. We ran out of money because of the kind of uh, difficulties that the markets went there at that time for any junior miner or explorer, put it this way. So we are drilling now mainly within the resource because of uh, great control on our pit number four. But in 2017, we will initiate a drilling program on the periphery of the deposit. Hopefully, we will expand the ounces. Now, the other key point here is is that uh, at the moment we are mining only the soft rock uh, material but uh, at the end when you pre-strip the surficial one-to-one strip ratio effectively surficial ore material you will go into the hard rock mineralization this is a completely outside this eight years that is going to extend the mine life beyond the 11 years of this deposit and at the moment we haven't done any engineering studies on the hard rock potential but we will do as the time comes and we will not spend other people's money we will spend our own free cash flow to do this exploration which is very important for any shareholder or any investor down the line we are pretty strong in the country we have a great operating team both on the management side but also on the Guyanese side tremendous tradesmen and workers that have experience from mining operations from other companies and we feel we will deliver the mine all the milestones as we promised them on time and on budget and i should mention that you're a member of a very competent management team with a proven track record that is successfully developing with your sister company the las chis 
Chispas project in Sonora State, Mexico. I'm talking about Silvercrest Metals. Absolutely, we are very proud of that. The management team in Canada is obviously very experienced. They has discovered deposits, has uh, sold deposits, has sold companies, but most importantly, has delivered value, real value to shareholders. And what we try to do in Guyana is effectively something we haven't done before in that country, but the same management team has worked in Mexico, as you said, and the Silvercrest Mines has uh, incredible support ahead in the past and now in the new vehicle too. So it's a good, a realistic team, down-the-earth team. We don't spend too much money and we don't pay ourselves that high, yet it's just a decent team that is keen and experienced in developing projects and delivering value. Obviously, the time will come when the deposit will be significantly higher, bigger, and at that time, obviously, we will do different economics. But at this stage and for the next few years, this company is focused only in improving the quality of the recoveries from the gold, in increasing throughput, all that in an environment where we respect the environment and the social structure around our deposit. And obviously, we safety is number one. So whatever we have done up to now, we had uh, zero accidents and uh, zero lost time. And it's a great jurisdiction in South America. It's the only English-speaking country in South America. So effectively, it's in uh, uh, British Guyana, used to be called, is an ex-UK colony, independent, and this year celebrated its 50th year anniversary from independence. Secular democracy based on British law and British standards, which is very good for us as a Canadian company. Give an example, Alice, when I consolidate our books at the end of the year or when the auditors work to check our finances, the job is very simple because in Guyana, the standards or the accounting standards are exactly the same like in Canada. So it's a British system with significant influence from the United States. And I would like to remind people that last year, if they Google Exxon and Guyana, the biggest discovery of oil on earth happened offshore in Guyana, so by Exxon Mobil. So this has put completely new light into the future of the government's approach to the country, the extractive laws in terms of not only mining, but also oil and gas, and definitely tremendous prospects for this beautiful country with very, very nice people that are very supportive. So more than 29% of the GDP of Guyana comes from the extractive industry. So we are there to stay for a long time and uh, deliver value to local stakeholders and also all our shareholders. Giannis, thanks for another great conversation. I appreciate the update and thanks for joining me today on the program. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk and encourage your listeners to put the company there right on the screen and check our news releases as we bring them every month. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as GXS and in the U.S. as GXSFF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Michael Raps, Vice President of Corporate Communications for Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. 
Silvercrest Metals Las Chispas project has proven to be potentially prolific as of late with discoveries of possible Bonanza-grade silver equivalent resource in the Las Chispas and William Tell veins. Mike, welcome to the program. One of the questions that some of our listeners may have had a few months ago when you were releasing numbers on the Bonanza grades of the Las Chispas project is, are they continuous? Are the grades high all the way through? And according to a recent Silvercrest news release, they are. That's actually true. We have seen further continuity of the high grades at the Las Chispas project. Although the width might be narrow, you know, it's over one to five meters, they are potentially mineable thicknesses. So we are very encouraged to what we have seen over the last few weeks. And we have completed phase one drilling and we are looking at starting phase two this fall. We've seen all the way through this year a substantial increase in share price compared to where we started in my mind last November and December. You've been able to deliver astounding results over the course of time with regard to resource potentially in the ground. We all know as well that this particular management team has had proven success in the past in this area and there's little reason to believe that they cannot deliver again. It's not always smart to speculate on these things but all of this is worth taking note of. If I was to look it up when we hit our $4 high I think we have increased over 2,000% year to date and basically you mentioned two of the reasons why it's definitely you know August 2nd when we released our first batch of news of the uh, drill assays and I haven't seen the market react so positively to good drill results as we have seen here on August the 2nd. The grades were impressive, Bonanza grades you called it just earlier. Secondly reputation of the management in the marketplace is I believe one of the reasons why we have seen such an increase in share price because the old Silvercrest Mines management right, has always delivered on their promises and Eric Fear, who is currently the president and CEO of the company has said that his ultimate vision is to do it again and turn this into a producer. And then you know listeners shouldn't forget that we also highly leveraged to the silver price and silver and gold have done unexpectedly well over the last six to eight months. So all of this combined basically led to that hike in the share price. Of course, the price of silver and gold can fluctuate, as is the case in recent days, Mike, but you factor that into potential production costs when it becomes time to do so. Much of this silver is easy to access. Historically speaking, there are 11.5 kilometers of underground workings on the Las Chispas project, and we have reopened and gained access to about 6 kilometers to date. So we have done a lot of work going into the underground, cleaning it out very systematically, taking channel samples from the footfall and the hanging wall, and drilling also basically will define those areas that are those high-grade pockets where we can go and extract a 100,000-ton bulk sample. Because if you remember, when we talked about the underground drilling permit, we have basically applied for that. We should be receiving that any day now. And with that underground drilling permit, it will also include the permit to conduct a 100,000 ton bulk sample. And so all this past drilling that we have done, all this future drilling that we will do this fall, lasting into the new year, all of that will be used to define those high-grade areas. Since you have this infrastructure at Las Chispas, it's not extremely expensive to develop compared to other projects in the world. Yeah, I don't think so. I think having all this infrastructure, as you said, in place, I mean, first of all, how to access the property, that's always very very important to the management of this company is that you want to be close to good infrastructure such as the highway. From our door to the underground portal, it takes about 45 minutes drive. And it's on highway, and then once you turn off the highway, it's about six kilometers to the portal. So 
that's important. And then, yeah, like you said, we have all these underground workings and you get all these drifts where you can just get into the underground from an infrastructure perspective, really favorable. How are you capitalized right now? We still have about three and a half million dollars cash in the bank. So we are definitely in a really good, strong position to start the phase two drilling with that cash, but the budget for that will be a little higher than the one that we did just recently, as we are looking to drill more meters than what we drilled in phase one and potentially have more than just one drill rig on site because the phase two drilling will include an underground drill rig and a surface drill rig. We have enough cash in bank to start off phase two drilling. Are you going into production eventually or is there a buyout strategy, a positive one, similar to what we saw with the previous incarnation, Silvercrest Mines? You never know really, Alice. You know, that's a question that only the future holds, but right now we don't have a for sale sign hanging by the door. Our strategy going forward is do it very systematically and based on the successes that we receive. Once we have completed phase two drilling, for example, we're going to compile all of the drill data and we'll initiate our maiden resource estimate. We expect that to be done in the first half of next year. Then you'll be looking at kicking off the bulk sample that I was talking earlier and you'll be starting to extract all this mineralized material from the underground and you just move on and move forward and you keep on developing this project. I think if you want to look at this from a timeline perspective, you'll probably be looking at easily three to five years before you would put that into production. There's a number of steps that you would have to do before you get into a production scenario. Recently, you put out news concerning the William Tell vein, an unmined vein, which means exactly that. It's never been mined. You did some samples there. What did you find? That is an extremely encouraging news release for, for us because what happened here in the past is these historic miners, it appears that they have mined on strike until they hit a fault. And that cross-cutting fault really displaced the, the vein. And so these miners just didn't continue any further and investigate it any further. So they went back to mine the Las Chispas vein. And as you know, Las Chispas has never been drill tested before. And so when we start putting some drill holes, into the area, it intercepted the unmined portion of the William Tell vein, and that is very encouraging to us. That basically means there's a lot of unmined material sitting there, and what phase two drilling will also do is we will go ahead and drill test the southern extension of the William Tell vein to see how long the strike lengths will be. That was a very encouraging find for us. According to what I've seen in this news release, you found potential grades of greater than 400 grams per ton. This is incredibly significant. This is a major, major project potentially for Silvercrest. It is. It definitely is. You know, we have looked at this quite intensively and we said to ourselves that everything over 150 grams per ton silver equivalent would be economic in our view. Uh, obviously, a 43-101 would all, you know, confirm that. But if we see those kind of grades, the 300, 400 grams per ton silver equivalent, yes, they have dropped off to the Bonanza type grades that we have put out August 2nd, but it still shows us some very economic grades that are coming forth from all these veins. And we are very encouraged. 
And keep in mind that when we drilled Las Chispas in the William Tell vein, we only drilled that first because we had A, access to the underground there, and B, we received the surface drilling permit easier and quicker than the underground. Because what the underground drilling permit will give us is that we now can go ahead and drill the Bobby Canora target, which holds the Bobby Canora vein. And that was the biggest producer, historically speaking, when they mined there between 1880 and 1930. Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. I look forward to more news in the very near future. Thanks again, Alex. It was great talking to you. I've been speaking with Michael Rapsch, Vice President of Corporate Communications for Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Bob Lang for Ellis Martin. Join us now for a conversation with Chris Bunka, Chairman and CEO of Lexaria Bioscience, trading on the OTCQB as LXRP and on the CSE as L. XX. Now, Lexaria Bioscience is a revenue-generating food sciences company. They're focused on the delivery of hemp oil compounds through gourmet foods based upon proprietary technologies. The company is actively developing and selling hemp oil-based gourmet food products through their subsidiary, Vipova, and under the Lexaria Energy brand. And these are exciting times for Lexaria. So we're fortunate to have a little bit of time here with Chris. Thank you, Chris, for coming to the show today. And uh, man, I saw what happened recently in the marketplace with your stock. It's pretty exciting times at your company. For our new listeners, give us a brief update on your company and what's going on. Well, thank you so much for having me again. I appreciate it uh, immensely. Um, yes, there's just been a lot going on, the excitement level. Uh, you can feel it around the office every day. People are just kind of buzzing around here because there's so much going on. You're quite right. Your intro is, is exactly spot on. We have developed some uh, interesting technology that helps to deliver what we call payload molecules. And those payloads could be cannabinoids like cannabidiol, CBD, or THC, uh, both of which are components of the cannabis plant. Cannabidiol, of course, also a component of the hemp plant and not psychoactive. Um, But our technology is also applicable to uh, other compounds that are named in our patents pending. And this is where the excitement level really does start to rise because we believe we have equal um, ability to manipulate those molecules. And those are things like uh, common painkillers, like things listeners would recognize as uh, Advil or or Tylenol, uh, fat-soluble vitamins, um, and even something as exotic as nicotine, the nicotine molecule, as well as the cannabinoids. So we're able to take any of those molecules, alter the taste and aroma profile, 
and also change the way your body detects and recognizes them, which allows for almost unbelievably higher levels of absorption into your bloodstream. It's a knockout package, and uh, and I can't wait to tell you a little more about it. So you've got a product that's not going to taste funny. It's going to be effective uh, right away, and it can be basically engineered for the gold. Ab- absolutely right. So under our own brands, uh, Vipova and Lexaria Energy, uh, we do not touch cannabis uh, under our company. We do not make any cannabis products. Uh, we do make products with hemp oil, as you say, and hemp oil products are federally legal in the United States. Thank goodness. And we offer coffee, tea, hot chocolate and protein bars, as well as a new product line coming out in, in a few weeks. Through our licensees, however, we do work with companies in the cannabis sector who are licensed to produce cannabis-based products. And so um, a real quick example that I can give you is people who eat cannabis edibles are uniformly aware of two, two big hurdles that generally exist. One, a lot of them don't taste that good. A lot of them taste like cannabis uh, rather than the cookie or the brownie or the chocolate that you're kind of expecting to eat. Uh, And two, a lot of people are really, really disappointed and frustrated with cannabis edibles because they generally take a long time before they begin to have an effect. Uh, And especially as this market expands and new people come into the market, they expect and kind of demand a quicker acting solution. So our technology incredibly alters the taste and aroma profile. Many people uh, report that they cannot taste the cannabis oils whatsoever or smell them in, in edibles made with our technology. And then because of the way we, um, it's called molecular conjugation. We join a couple of molecules together in our process. So that'll be, say, the cannabis molecules along with a long chain fatty acid. We join them together. And in doing that, we, we hide that payload inside the fatty acid. And all of us as humans have a preferential pathway for a very certain type of fatty acid, a long chain fatty acid. And when your body detects that molecule, it says, okay, hang on a second, everybody else stop. This molecule gets preferential treatment. You bypass the liver, you go straight into the lymphatic system and into the bloodstream. And what that means, and obviously this is very casually said, (laughs) but what that means is that typically people who consume cannabis edibles with our technology report effects of them in 15 to 20 minutes, then in 60 to 100 minutes without any enabling technology. Big difference. So you'll be able to approach, and you currently are, I, I would imagine, not just the the food supplement and vitamin industry, but also on the cannabis side, you have licensing ability there. You almost seem like you have four quadrants that you can express revenue in. You're bang on. We absolutely do. So we've uh, identified four kind of market verticals. The one that Uh, moving most quickly is the cannabis or cannabinoid industry, whether it's psychoactive or not. Uh, And we are, we have begun generating cash flows in that industry already in in 2016. The the second vertical is vitamins and supplements. Uh, The third vertical is something called NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And that's that class of over-the-counter medications, as I mentioned earlier, that are well known as um, uh, things in almost everybody's medicine cabinet, aspirin, Advil, Tylenol, as well as prescription-based varieties of, of those sorts of compounds. And then the fourth vertical, nicotine, which we can also alter the way we describe. Um, and that has big down-the-road potential societal uh, ramifications because 
you know, obviously 6 million people a year die from cigarette smoking. And what needs to be said is it's the method of delivery of the nicotine that's killing people. It's not the nicotine. The nicotine in and of itself in small doses has been laboratory proven to be an effective treatment in some cases for things like Alzheimer's. Nicotine in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but combusting it and inhaling the combustion is what causes lung disease. You have things on the retail side of the market. You have things on the vitamin supplement side of the market, but you also have, you're licensing your technology out to others. So you really have a broad spectrum of available places to expand into and some of it very humanitarian. Yeah, we really do. And I mean, you're, you're quite right. When you mentioned that word humanitarian, I mean, you know, one of the really sad things, and I wish the industry would talk about this a little more than it does, but science now knows there's a number of different differences between the molecules that are in cannabis and hemp. There's, there's, as everybody knows, there's hundreds of different molecules in that plant. THC, the most uh, psychoactive compound in the plant, is very heat tolerant. And in fact, in many ways, it really adores heat. It changes some of its properties when it gets hot. Cannabidiol uh, or CBD, which is, you know, starting to become widely accepted as, if not the most medical component of medical marijuana, certainly one of them. Cannabidiol does not like heat, generally speaking. And so when people smoke medical marijuana, the tragic thing is that they're destroying a large proportion of the cannabidiol that's in that smokable form of marijuana to start with. And so they've really not done themselves as much of a service as they could if they could find a better way to deliver it. And of course, that's what our technology does. For 2015 and 2016, a lot of people looked at me like I had three eyeballs (laughs) (laughs) because they didn't really believe that what we've been talking about as a company could be true. And then I think really what's changed that in the last week, uh, quite obviously, is the news we've had from the U.S. Patent Office. And all of a sudden, our credibility has risen. So we really hope we can help a lot of people with that uh, in, in the time to come. It's just amazing. Did you expect to see the reaction in the market that came about just recently? You know, we expected to see some sort of a reaction. And I'm, I'm a little bit overwhelmed by the, by the reaction that we've had. It's certainly been widely positive. And, and of course, you know, we've got our first patent. It is for non-psychoactive cannabinoids mixed with the fat and then dehydrated uh, in order to produce that molecular conjugation and, and then delivered to the body. And so a lot of people are just starting to say, oh my gosh, you really have that widespread applicability that you were mentioning uh, earlier. And, and we really do. You know, this technology is real, it's tested, and I'm very happy to say we have uh, roughly another half dozen patent applications all lined up, already filed, uh, anywhere between uh, June of 2014 and December of 2015, we've filed all of those applications. And we have very, very strong reasons to believe that at least some of them, God willing, all of them will be successful. So yeah, our technological credibility has gone way up. The market loves the news. Our our stock's gone up. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I really think this is just the beginning. You're in a very broad and deep area of the science. I, I would imagine there's still quite a bit of upside potential to that. Oh, I, I think we barely scratched the surface. I think all we've done is create some of, uh, is transform some of the non-believers into believers. But but think about this: 
unlike most true cannabis companies, because we do not touch the plant, nor do we want to, uh, we do not need to be licensed. So all of a sudden, our technology can be rented, if you will, licensed by licensed cannabis companies in Washington, in Colorado, in Oregon, in Alaska, in Canada, in Jamaica, in South America, wherever cannabis laws are opening up. Seven states are going to decide it uh, during this election as well. So that's even more potential market for uh, licensing. Even more potential. And then that even still all ignores the vitamin and supplement and pain pain remedy markets, which are all much bigger than cannabis. So the cannabis market is here today. It's big. We're generating revenue. We're getting more interest literally daily. I can't tell you how many times my phone is rung in the last 48 hours since the notice of of, uh, patent granting. Um, Um, So we are in negotiations with a number of companies right now uh, about signing new technology licensing agreements. It's really exciting. It really is. And I want to thank you for giving us a part of your day to sit and talk about it, because this has been a fascinating week to learn about it. And having you on has just expanded that audience. Perhaps people will now recognize uh, the value in the the products and technology you bring to the market. Well, thanks very much. Always happy to uh, keep people uh, up to date and informed. And as I say, this is the top of the first inning. Awesome. We've been speaking with Chris. Chris Bonka, Chairman and CEO of Lexaria Bioscience, trading on the OTCQB as LXRP and on the CSE as LXX. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Bob Lang. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.